and welcome back to Buen Provecho Chronicles. I'm your host, Claudia, and I'm back with another great episode. Today, I'll be sharing my conversation with Isabel Torrealba, who is one half of the dynamic duo of Mexican culinary traditions. Isabel, along with her mother, Ileana de la Vega, offers culinary tours to some of the most important culinary destinations in Mexico. When you travel with them, you're traveling with an anthropologist and a chef, so you're not getting your standard food tour, but so much more. I love speaking with intelligent, passionate women, and my conversation with Isabel did not disappoint. So let's jump right in to my conversation with Isabel from Mexican Culinary Traditions. It's so nice to meet you. <laughs> nice to meet you too. I'm doing well. How are Good. you? Good. Are you in Austin or are you in New York? I am in Austin right now, actually. I, I don't live in New York anymore. I left New York um, like two months before the pandemic, basically. So. Oh, wow. On purpose or like? I'm, yeah, I'm... on purpose. I moved to Mexico City and that's where I spent the pandemic, actually. I was living in Mexico City at the time. Yeah. So you're still, okay. So you're in Mexico City full time. No, not really. It was, it's, I'm kind of not living anywhere at the moment. <laughs> I have, uh, all my stuff lives in Mexico City, my couch, my bed, all of that. Uh, but I live between just hotels during the tours because we're doing um, about five months out of the year we're doing tours. Mm -hmm. um, and then the rest of the time I kind of crash in Austin at my parents' house right now. <laughs> I'm trying to figure out where I want to move, but I don't want to pay a bunch of rent while I figure it out. It makes sense. What are yeah. the, what's on the list? What's. I'll, I'll probably just go back to Mexico city. That's, that's really where my, my heart lives. Yeah. I love, I love Mexico city. We've been three times. We went um, over new year's Eve. We actually spent new year's Eve there and we no, took some great. friends with us. Yeah. Who had never been. And I was like, I really have a big crush on, the on city. that city yeah no I love it so much <laughs> it's I think it's my my favorite place in the world really well I haven't been everywhere but so far <laughs> so far so, I know I mean I've been to several places and I don't know there's something really unique about Mexico City to me yeah. too and it's changed a lot since the pandemic we went so this was our third time the second time I think it was like 2018 so to go back a few years later it's Parts of it have changed. Let me put it that way. Certain neighborhoods have changed. Well, certain neighborhoods have become <laughs> just overtaken by Americans. Yep. So, you know really what I'm talking about. change that I've seen. Yeah. It's just a, an invasion of digital nomads. It really, really is. <laughs> I was kind of in shock, like walking around La Condesa. I was like, whoa, this is insane. I mean, it... And you hear mostly English and you know, they're mostly Americans, but I mean, I heard French and German and you name it, but yeah, it was kind of wild. I'd, I've read also several articles, people like locals, rightfully so complaining about what that influx of digital nomads has done to the neighborhood. Oh, of course. Uh, well, especially because Americans that move other places don't really like to call themselves immigrants, right? They're just like rightfully living in this new area. They're expats. And that means also they're not really integrating into society that much. Mm -hmm. So they're not paying taxes. They're not really adding much to the economy. They're not being participant citizens in a way. They're not, they're only reciting, getting the benefits, which is, you know, they earning dollars, they work in the U.S. and then they live really cheaply in Mexico. 
So that brings a whole other set of problems for the citizens when the rents have gone up in like 85%, which is crazy because locals just can't afford that. So no, no yeah. So it's not really their fault. I think the government just needs to regulate the situation because they really haven't. But they've they've started talking to other uh, governments of cities like Barcelona to figure out other ways to resolve this issue. So yeah, yeah, I think the pandemic, yeah, it created a unique problem, I guess. Yeah, yeah, those with wealth who could move and and did are now kind of we're starting to see the ripple effects of all of that. So oh, absolutely, yeah, yeah, but it's a great city. It's possible it's a for city. a reason. <laughs> we still love it. We still love it. I, I still love it. It's um it's where I was born actually, so it has a okay. very special place in my heart. Yeah. Do you have favorite areas of Mexico City, or just the whole city? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I have many areas that I that I really love. Um, I really like the south of Mexico City a, a little more than I like the the north. Just in terms of culture, it just feels a little more residential in a way to me. Are we talking uh, like Coyoacan or even further south? Coyoacan, Del Valle, and yeah, further south. If you go to like Tlalpan, these are not neighborhoods that tourists go to, really. Mm-hmm. It's where families live. And it's where a lot of really nice family restaurants are, you know, that people don't really go to. Um, there's this amazing restaurant that I love going to that I've been going to since I was a kid because I used to live in that neighborhood when mm-hmm. I was very little. And there are really no tourists there. It's just locals lining up to eat very simple things in the morning and the afternoons. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's kind of a nice vibe. I obviously love the other neighborhoods, sure. Roma, Condesa, Juarez, Cautemoc. Uh, There's a lot of neighborhoods that are really growing a little differently with mm-hmm. good things and bad things. I love downtown because I Centro Historico, it's, it's where a lot of the culture happens. I think there are just people shopping and going there to buy all these things, you know, wedding dresses, quinceañera dresses. Um, They go there for food. They go there for tools. They go there for speakers. And there's a street for all these kinds of things. Um, So if you get out of the like museum streets, uh, there's just a lot of culture happening, just people going on about their days buying things. And so I I love to see just markets. Urban markets are really fun to me. Yeah, same here. We When we were there, actually, we went into La Merced, and walked around and it was a different world I mean it's just a few blocks in and it was our friends who had never been they were just like amazed and yeah it was really really cool to see and then just the story within it there like that used to be a residential area and then as people moved out and businesses moved in and we went to a very very old restaurant where Marilyn Monroe ate like it was part of a culinary food tour that we did Um, so it was nice to get the back story of it and the migration of the people within the city. I mean, it's a huge city. So I feel like every time we go, we discover something new. Yeah, no, you can you can never finish getting to know Mexico City. There's just no. so much to it. And yeah, I mean, to me, downtown is kind of, it's kind of gritty, which I like. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's, it's like city area. <laughs> and I kind of like that a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Mexico City is good. It's a nice mix of like grit and then just raw beauty. And I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, so but you get... It. You get so many different feelings uh, within each neighborhood. You know, mm-hmm. you move from neighborhood to neighborhood. It's just like you're sort of in a completely different place. Yep. Uh, and that's why it's so exciting to me because it just differs so much. The architecture, what you encounter, uh, just everything changes when you move from one neighborhood to the next. We've stayed in Coyoacan the second time we were there. And that was such a completely different experience from when we went the very first time, which we had stayed in Roma. 
Um, and, you know, you're a little closer to Condesa and all of that. And we really enjoyed it. The trip felt weirdly more calm because mm. Coyoacan is a little, not quieter, but it is in a way at night. It's a little bit more, it's locals, it's residential. And so this yeah. time again, we were in Roma Sur, different experience. Um, oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, um, Coyoacan feels a little provincial to me. It reminds mm. me a little bit about Oaxaca or like the vibe I had when I was living in Oaxaca as a kid. Yeah. Uh, it's just like kids playing in the main plaza and the jardin and families just drinking coffee or something around there and it has of course this like really long history of artists living there and people like Trotsky um so it has a very interesting history too yeah it really really does so you mentioned Oaxaca but you were born in Mexico City you how long did you live in Mexico City before you moved to Oaxaca only three years um I was very young when we moved to Oaxaca we had a really short stint in Chile. My dad is Chilean. So we moved to Chile to Santiago when I was three. Mm-hmm. We only lived there for a year um, and nobody really got used to it. So we decided to return to Mexico. Uh, my grandma, she was originally from Oaxaca. Mm-hmm. So my family from my mother's side is from Oaxaca and she had moved back to Oaxaca. So we were just kind of like, okay, let's give it a try or not me because I was a kid, but my friends were like, let's, let's go somewhere a little calmer because Mexico City in the 90s was not its best moment. There was uh, a lot of pollution, a lot of, uh, a lot of kidnappings. It was just not going through its best time. So uh, we left and went to the province, as we say in Mexico. So I grew up in Oaxaca. I lived there from the time I was four to the time I was uh, 17. Would you say Oaxaca? I know one of the questions that I always like to ask is what are your earliest food memories or like what's the food background of your childhood? It sounds like yours might be, even though you were in Chile only one year. Did, yeah. Like what was that? Like what were, what are your earliest food memories? My earliest food memories are definitely in Oaxaca and my very my very first food memory that I have is not really about eating. It's more about cooking um, and cooking with my grandma. I grew up with food. My older women in my family cooked my uh, great aunt, my aunt, and then my mom, obviously as a chef, she, she owned a restaurant that they opened when I was six, I believe. Um, so I was very young. I didn't, my grandma used to cook at the restaurant. So sometimes in the mornings and like the weekends I would, I would spend time with her and she would be cooking things. She made the desserts for the restaurant, my grandma, back when I was a kid. So I remember cooking with her. She used to make this uh, pecan cake. That was amazing. She was just a very traditional, simple recipe. And so my earliest food memory is cooking that cake with her. And she was teaching me how to tell with egg whites when you get to like a ribbon stage. And that's just, it kind of stuck with me. I still remember that little cooking class with her. So yeah, people people always think that my like my earliest food memories are usually with my mom or my mom's food, but it was with with my grandma. And I think that says a lot about food in Mexico and culture in Mexico and how it's really a a, a food of women mm. um, that gets passed down from women to women. And my mom learned to cook with my great aunt and my grandma, and I also learned to cook with my grandma and my great aunt and then my mom too. So. That's a thought to me in just the culturally what it means in Mexico. Yeah, the, what it what it's passing down. And for people who may not know, your mom is Ileana de la Vega. She's a James Beard Award winner as of last year. Is that right? That's or, right. Yeah. 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 So that's yeah. Pretty Best cool. Chef Texas. First. Best Chef Texas. 
first woman who uh, wins the, the prize because it's the first time of this category of uh, the best chef Texas and obviously uh, Hispanic woman. Fantastic. She's a, she's amazing. I've had I've <laughs> loved every time I've interacted with her. And yeah, I enjoyed working with her when I had the chance, not in the restaurant. I didn't work with her in a restaurant, <laughs> um, but just on the side. So, but as you were talking about learning from your grandma, that's my earliest food memory too, is actually, um, I didn't learn to cook from her. I learned to cook from my mom, but yeah, it is. It's this passing on of like literally from one hand to the next, the generational, the recipes, the knowledge. And then you kind of add to it as you kind of grow up and go along and include your own experiences. So, okay. So you grow up with a mother who obviously has made a career cooking food. You're seeing all of this. You're living in Oaxaca. What was, like, was it just expected that you might go into, because you also have a sister and she is a pastry a chef. chef, right? She actually, yeah, she actually went into cooking. I I think when I was maybe eight years old, I thought I would just become a chef just because like as if by inertia or something. Um, but as I grew older, I I realized I liked cooking, but I didn't really like the restaurant business, which just they're two completely different things. And I think a lot of people, especially people that go into culinary school, they don't really realize how distinct it is to cook than to own a restaurant because you're Oftentimes, you're not really actually cooking that much at a restaurant. You, it's it's more about the logistics and dealing with the restaurant. And I honestly just hated the business, and I couldn't see myself in it because it's so much it's so much work. Mm. If you're doing it like my friends were doing it, which was being present and there and supervising everything all the time, yeah, you you start really early and you finish really late. So you're there all the time. You're just the restaurant becomes kind of your life. Yeah. Um, and that's how it was for me and my sister. We grew up in a restaurant. Um, as I said, they opened it when I was six. And we would finish school and go to the restaurant, not my house. I barely spent any time at my house. Uh, we had a room there with a TV and a couch and a desk and a computer. And we would live there in the afternoons and we would go home to sleep at like 11 o'clock. Wow. And we were young, so my friends would have to basically carry us in their arms when we were asleep. <laughs> And that's how we spend Christmases too and holidays. You know, my parents had to work, so we would spend Christmas at the restaurant. So I I just knew that I like to travel and I just wouldn't be able to do that if I was stuck in a restaurant. So when my parents asked us if we wanted to take over the business a few years ago, I said, absolutely not. And my sister said, yes, I want to do it. <laughs> so <laughs> now she's uh, she's heading the restaurant that we have here in Austin, head chef, and because we travel so much, my mom and I, um, it's really, it's really my, my sister and my dad and obviously my mom when she's here too, that are leading the restaurant, but it's, it's a family affair, this whole, whole thing. The whole, the, the whole little ecosystem that you have going on now. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Very family business. <laughs> Do you enjoy, I mean, maybe don't answer that question. <laughs> obviously you, yeah. Obviously you must, if you keep doing it, you must enjoy working with your mom to some extent. I think it's actually one of the things I like the most and I feel very grateful because I not only love my mom and I have a great time with her, but I I feel lucky that I get to spend so much time with her. Yeah, I like seeing her. I, I like being with her. We spend so much time together. Uh, we share rooms when we travel. So we're like really, really close to each other. A lot of quality time. Yes, but I, I do feel very lucky um, because 
you I mean sometimes you don't get enough time with the people you love so it's very true yeah absolutely okay so then you decided no I don't want to go into food at what point were you like okay now what do I do or you you knew I'm still going to do food but I'm going to pursue it down this path or because you're no not at all I wanted to have nothing to do with food actually uh -huh. oh wow uh, yeah when I was a teenager I I wanted to go into psychology and that's what I did. I have a bachelor's in psychology. Halfway through studying that at UT, I, UT Austin, mm -hmm. I I realized that also wasn't for me. And I was already taking some classes in anthropology and I decided to pursue that direction as well. So I graduated with those two majors and because I liked anthropology so much better. Uh, but no, I... I just decided I didn't want to do anything with food because I wanted to do something different um, and just have a different life. But, you know, life is kind of funny and sometimes you end up doing things that you didn't think you would do. Yep. So <laughs> I, I ended agree. up writing about food, uh, which is a little a little bit different, but it suits me so much better. Did that happen just kind of on its own or you were drawn to it, even though you were like, no, I don't want to work with food or. Yeah, it happened naturally. Um uh, I feel like the things that I ended up doing were not the things that I thought I would do at all when I was younger. It was just the way things ended up settling and happening and the turns that life took. Um, but it just makes so much sense to me now in a way that I think that if I had planned it, it wouldn't have happened. <laughs> so do you consider yourself a culture? I was reading through the bio, your bio in particular, on your website, the Mexican Culinary Traditions and title or labels you as a cultural anthropologist would you use that label for yourself or yeah sure I mean I think it's uh I think so much of the way I do the tours has to do with my background in anthropology and how I ended up writing and getting into food because that's when I was studying anthropology in college I decided to do my thesis in Oaxaca in regards to a very rare uh, chili that grows in the mountains in Oaxaca. And it just kind of ended up going through that path. Eventually, I realized what I really liked and enjoyed was writing and observing. Mm -hmm. And so I studied journalism afterwards. So, I mean, I consider myself like a writer slash um, anthropologist. And I guess now I'm a uh, sort of tour operator as well <laughs> you wear a lot of hats yes I yeah. do actually yeah that, I mean it's fun because it's if you are naturally lean toward being curious about life in general I think being able to do many different things keeps you excited about what you do and all of those yeah. things yeah I mean the reason why I went into anthropology was because um, when I was studying psychology, I was really interested in people. And I thought mm -hmm. it was all about the mind, you know, and I thought everything was individual. And when I started taking some classes here and there of anthropology, I I just liked the idea of observing or understanding why people do what they do as more of a cultural thing, mm -hmm. you know, um, how we, what we become, what we are influenced by everything around us, yeah. our environment, the history, the politics, um, it's all, we're all sort of connected and it's all sort of connected. And I think to me, it just explains things a little, a little better, a little less abstract than just thinking about the mind and the processes mm -hmm. that happen that we don't even realize what, what they are. And it was 
something that I could observe better and understand a little better. And, and I just loved it so much. Yeah. And then I know, how old were you when you moved to the States? I was uh, 17. Okay. So, I mean, those are also like really formative years, I think, right? I mean, we go into college and we think we want to do one thing. I have a bachelor's degree from UT also um, in film. Clearly, I'm not doing that anymore. <laughs> <laughs> but we go in because you're like, ah, eh, that's what I'm curious about. That's what we want right. to do. But I'm also wondering, like, I grew up on the border, which I, I've probably said this like a thousand times already, like on this podcast, but it's such a different world, the border in and of itself between the U.S. and Mexico. And so then like coming to a, a city like Austin, that felt like a different world to me. And being in this place of higher education, that's a completely different culture. And I'm just wondering, like, yeah, like having immigrated from Mexico at that age, when like more, a lot of what you had lived with was in Mexico at 17, you come to a new place and you go to college, like that's got to also inform the way you're looking at the world. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. It was, uh, it was like a cultural shock because yeah. it's, not, it's not like Mexico is in Western <laughs> country in the Northern hemisphere, but, but it was very different the way people lived here, the way people related to each other, especially I think for me, the way people socialize in the U.S. is so different to the way people socialize in Mexico and the way we bond and make friendships. So when I was a teenager and it was a very abrupt move when we came to the U.S., um, it wasn't that we really chose to move. It was that we right. had to move. Mm -hmm. So my parents told us a week before, uh, oh, we're living in six days. We're moving to the U.S. and, you know, you can take one suitcase. So it was all about, okay, well, what do I fit into this one suitcase of my whole entire life? And I was in the middle of the school year. It was my last year of high school. And I was just, so I had to leave all my friends and like the boyfriend I had at the time. And it was very traumatizing to me. Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> and yeah, and I started school already with the year, uh, the school year started. Um, mm -hmm. So it was weird and awkward and my English was okay. I spoke some English, but it wasn't perfect. So of course there was dealing with the bullying and people making fun of you because you couldn't say certain words correctly. And just introducing yourself to a new culture. And um, I found high school to be very clicky. It seemed to me just exactly like in the movies that you would see. Well, uh, <laughs> you know, there were the cheerleaders and the jocks and like yeah. the hippies. It was just completely that way for me. Um, so it was... It was definitely an interesting thing. It I can't say it was my favorite time in life. No, yeah, um, I can imagine. It was hard, but I, I, I think, I think things kind of settled as they do. You start figuring out that there are reasons for things, right? And I wouldn't have done certain things that I that I did if I we hadn't moved. I wouldn't had some opportunities and experiences. So, right. I mean, I'm grateful now, but yeah, it was it was hard, yeah. Did any, was your um, love of travel, did that, did it come out of any of those experiences or was it already even before? I think my love for travel, I, I just, I always had this issue of wanting to be wherever else that wasn't where I was. Uh -huh. um, as a kid, I, I just, I, I hated being in Oaxaca until I left and then I just loved it and I wanted to come back. Yeah, it was just. I wanted to experience new things and see new things. And I just kind of felt living in a small town, you often feel kind of trapped. Yes. 
so I just I just wanted to go somewhere else and now I love going back to Oaxaca and 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 I love it so much but uh but yeah when I was a teenager I just wanted to not be there yeah so <laughs> yeah that was basically it <laughs> <laughs> so were you the the brainchild behind Mexican culinary traditions or was it like a joint thing between you and your mom it was my idea and it was it was born out of unemployment. I was I was 25 or 24 and then I had graduated from studying anthropology and I moved to Mexico City and I was living there and I could not find a job. And I was just really depressed about this. Yeah. <laughs> Being like, okay, well, I need to do something else because if I can't find a job. And at that time, my mom was doing trips for certain companies that would approach or restaurants I would approach her and ask her oh hey can you take us to to Mexico and guide us and do a little trip with us and show us around but she was just doing this on occasion when people asked her certain companies she did it with like avocados from Mexico and some chefs and she did one of those with some chefs that asked her to take them to Oaxaca and out of that I just had the idea of doing this on just a public scale and offering trips to people and so I talked to her and I told her my idea and she was just kind of like, well, I don't know, but let's try it. Uh, <laughs> so it'll, it, it'll, it'll just started very, very much like that. We yeah. put up a flyer at the restaurant. That's how we started advertising and just something, a post on her Facebook page, I think. And that's kind of it. We wow. didn't, we didn't invest any money <laughs> in it. We didn't advertise anywhere. We just kind of started that way. So what year was that? That was 2015. Oh, wow. I didn't realize it'd been around that long. Yeah, it's our eighth year doing this. That's crazy. I can't even imagine. Well, I can, sort of, because I always think like, oh, wouldn't it be cool to try to get a group of people to go down there? But then the logistics behind it. Yeah, it's um, a lot of work. <laughs> yeah, it's a lot of work. I mean, planning the restaurants and the places to stay. And then everybody is an individual person with their own needs. And so, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it takes it takes a lot. Um, my my mom mainly does the guiding and the the leading when we are in, in the trips. But uh, I take care of all the organizing, all the emailing, all the setting up uh, the reservations, I do the itineraries, I do the money. So it's uh, when you own your business, you basically have to do lots of jobs at yeah. once. So you've got a business side. How does your cultural anthropology side come into play? Like, how does it show up in the in the work that you do? Well, I think I think nothing ever happens in a vacuum. When when I'm trying to set up a trip, I try to think about all the elements surrounding uh, the food, right? So uh, our history, our politics, our traditions, our culture, uh, and our own individual stories and how they shape these things. So I try to tell a story when I make an itinerary of how the place came to being. So for example, let's take Oaxaca. There's a story that precedes uh, colonization and the Spanish coming in. I tried to incorporate that idea and bring in some elements of that. There, uh, there used to be before Spanish conquest, we had indigenous groups, the Zapotecs. Oaxaca is actually a very ethnically diverse state. It's the most ethnically diverse state in Mexico. So we have 16 indigenous groups in Oaxaca out of the 56 in Mexico. And the Zapotec is the, the biggest one, and it's where the it's really where the Central Valleys are. It's all Zapotec. So uh we try to bring that into 
into the tour, what was there before Spanish conquest, right? There was Montalban, the archaeological sites. Um, they were already doing pottery back in the day, utilitarian pottery. The black clay that you see now, it was, it was then, even then. The ingredients that were there in the food, the corn, the beans, the squashes, the tomatoes, um, the chiles, of course, pumpkin seeds, they were already doing a sort of mole before the Spanish arrived. But very big with those ingredients, the, to uh, the tomatoes, the chiles, pumpkin squash, uh, all those things. So we try to give that element uh, first so people understand what the background is and then what happened when the Spanish came. Um, they brought certain things with them, some of the architecture, the colonial architecture, which also has its own history behind that from the Moors uh, and what came with the Moors too that the Spanish brought things like the Alambique, the, the copper still. And that's how he started distilling mezcal, for example. So it's all sort of like a woven story of all the pieces. And so it's not just about food because mm -hmm. food, you get a dish and you might see it and you might taste it, but where where do all the elements come from? You know, there's politics, there's history, there's trading, there's so much behind it. So we bring a lot of those cultural items to it too. We don't just like eat at places. We go and visit um, places like Montalban. We go to certain towns around and we talk to artisans and we visit certain houses. So yeah, there's, there's so much to there's so much history and just culture behind everything. When we when we eat a mole, we talk about those things, you know, like the spices that also came um, trading and um, the 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 Manila galleons and came like cinnamon and black pepper and all those things. And mole like mole negro has thirty two ingredients, um, so it's super complex, and it it tells a whole story about. Uh, just colonization and trade and politics and yeah. so so anyway when I when I plan a trip I try I try to tell that whole story as just a whole thing yeah uh, so we don't just it's not just to me it's not just about going to a place and oh this is really pretty and this is really yummy mm. it's about all the background so that's how I plan my itineraries when I do them and are you actually presenting like this information like to the group yeah, we talk about it as we go to places. Uh, I hope that's how it comes across, but that's the idea behind it. And uh, and yeah, we talk, I mean, I try to tell them all about the indigenous groups and all the things that were there before, all the things that came later. So yeah, it's it's a whole picture. I think that's one of the, I think that's one of the greatest things that I've gotten out of traveling to Mexico in particular, because it's like, it's one thing to be like, oh, I'm Mexican. And these are the traditions that I grew up with. And then if you choose to and, and have the means to dig deeper, and that is usually comes through travel, um, to start to learn about some of those things. So, you know, I'll think of a candy that I ate when I was little. And as I've gotten older, and I've traveled, I learn about how that candy was made and why it was made like it was made by the nuns out of a necessity right to get money and those nuns that recipe might have actually come from the Spanish and just incorporating all of those different things um, and I think it's fascinating because then you start to see similarities across different cultures so a candy that you might find in Mexico you'll find something similar possibly in the Philippines because it was the same convent right that yes. colonized and all of that stuff and it just also shows how interconnected we are which Sometimes it feels like we're not in these days, but <laughs> no, it's a, I mean, it's it's amazing. Like when you're in Mexico City and you think about the single most Mexico City defining dish, which is the taco al pastor, right? Mm -hmm. 
And you realize that it actually came to be from the Lebanese that moved to Mexico City. And it was uh, and it was the meat done in the spit and the like the kebab meat. Mm-hmm. And then we Mexicanized it and I did pineapple and cilantro and then, yeah. you know, and some chilies <laughs> and stuff and serve it in a corn tortilla. But yeah. all these influences are coming from other places. Yeah. It's really, it's really interesting. We have really interesting things all over in Oaxaca, for example, in the coast with trading with the Manila Galleons came the tandoori oven and they do the, very, this very interesting like tortilla, it's a tostada, it's called a totopo, um, that they cook in the tandoori oven. So it's all this variety of things that, that come and, you know, and it's it's kind of amazing to see. It, it really is. I feel like I'm sure there, I don't, I'm sure there are other cuisines that have these types of similarities. But as I read more, I was reading a book about Sor Juana and the convents and it feels like the kitchen was, I don't want to say it was an equalizer because there was hierarchy and caste systems right. and all of that between the Spanish and then the indigenous and then you had the mestizos and all of that. But it felt like the kitchen was the place where maybe everybody could insert a piece of themselves and it created what we call Mexican cuisine these days. And so... Yeah, they've left a mark somehow, even if. Oh, absolutely! Yeah, a lot of the, a lot of the most emblematic dishes that we have in Mexico were created in convents by nuns, and the and the people that worked there that were indigenous, and they just mixed a bunch of things together, so it was like a syncretism. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's really. I think it's really fascinating. I do. So then that makes me curious. Oaxaca, obviously, you you grew up there. How do you go about? choosing other cities for your for your tours do you like to call them tours or do you have a different word I was talking to um, another I don't know I think you know I think your mom knows or you might know her too Andrea Hagen from a scouting out of Oaxaca oh yeah I I love her she's she's a really good friend of mine and we work with her with for our tours actually she she does our uh our mezcal tasting okay yeah I spoke to her um and so we were talking about that and they she's like they are. It is a tour. She's like we we use the word outing because it's a, a a little bit of a different feel. And so I feel right. like yours. I know you use the word, word tour, but I think there's also it's something else at the same time because you are educating people in a way that just a walking food tour doesn't. <laughs> yeah, I yeah. I think to me it matters less what we call it. If we want to call it tour, sounds a little I don't know for people they get this idea of a tour being just a you know a group of fifty people with a lady guiding them with just some kind of. Uh, <laughs> and they're just following along going to like the Louvre Museum I don't know it's definitely not that but we can call it a tour we can call it a trip we could call it an adventure we could call it an experience uh to me that's less important than like what we actually do but yeah it's a trip it's a one week immersive experience if we want (laughs) to yeah yeah be a little more like advertising about it (laughs) um so maybe that's a better question then how is how are yours different, say, from other gastronomic food tours? And then you can answer my other question about how you choose cities. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'll answer both. Um, so in short, like in one short line, our our trips are very specific. They have a very distinct quality. And it's the idea that you get a local chef who knows the cuisine intimately and the ingredients to guide you through a particular destination. So a lot of the trips that other people offer, even if they are food related, it's just someone who maybe likes food or knows about food or some someone local who grew up eating in a place. 
But I think it's a different idea when it's a chef that works with all the ingredients and knows them and knows the story and this, the history uh, of those ingredients. So you get that angle uh, with us. And then I think it goes to what I was saying earlier, that it's not just about the eating or the visiting this or that site, um, but it's really about understanding culture, the history, the politics, um, and it gives a very personal approach. And when we take people to learn about arts, for example, it's not it's not only food. We do cultural activities yeah, okay. in between the eating because we you can't just eat all day. Uh, so a little bit of that. But we take people directly to artisans, for example. We go to their houses. They teach us about their uh, their work, the work to do, the art to do. And then we have some meals, not just in restaurants, but we take people to see, uh, to eat at people's houses with traditional cooks that are magnificent. Um, so we're eating there in their houses. And this is just something that you can't really get otherwise. You need uh, you need very intimate knowledge of a place and also yeah. very good connections. <laughs> so Absolutely. <laughs> so that's one thing. And then your other question about choosing destinations, we obviously choose important culinary gastronomic destinations. That okay. is the one thing that we look for initially. And places that are very rich in and deep in history when it comes to their food. And we want them to be very distinct. And Mexico, Mexico is so rich because each uh, each state, its region has its own cuisine that you can really you can really keep going. Like I, we could do 32 different destinations in Mexico and each one will be completely different. Obviously some have better food than others. So far we've chosen very important culinary destinations. I think some of the richer ones, uh, Michoacan is super rich in food. Oaxaca is, in, I mean, they people call it a food, food mecca for a reason. Uh, Mexico City is just an incredibly interesting place that has food from all over the world. And then we have Yucatan and they also have their own uh cuisine mm -hmm. uh, with a lot of Mayan tradition so yeah so unique destinations that sort of have a rich history and great food yeah <laughs> and they're beautiful yeah, yeah all of and these beautiful. are amazing yeah is it do you have a plan to like just keep adding and adding or you is it uh, yeah I don't know like at what point do you stop and you're like we can't do all of this and also you don't want to dilute it does that make sense? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we could keep adding destinations. As I said, basically infinite in Mexico because there's so much. Um, I mean, we think, oh, we could do Chiapas and we could do Puebla and there's just, I mean, Veracruz. And right now we're we're planning our newer our new destination. We're thinking about uh, Baja California and doing the wine region of Mexico. Okay. Which I think would be really interesting as well. But um, it's more about how much we can stretch ourselves because we're already so doing so many so many trips a, a year that we can't just spend our whole entire year on the road that's probably just, my parents would probably get a divorce so uh no I'm kidding uh but uh, but it, I mean it is a strain on a relationship to be gone and it yeah absolutely yeah absolutely they miss each other and absolutely. Uh, and we also miss just being home you know sometimes being on the road is, is really hard so I think we'll will expand and grow the company in a different way going forward mm -hmm. more than adding destinations in Mexico that we have to do ourselves we might my plan is to expand beyond Mexico and have the same format with chefs that are local to other places 
So, I mean, it would be the same idea. You get a local chef to show you around the place, someone that knows the cuisine very well, but it's not something that we would be necessarily guiding. I might be doing the organizing, all of that, but it would be someone local because, I mean, we can't know absolutely everything, right? So if we were to do a trip of Peru, we're not we're not Peruvian. Uh, we might speak Spanish, but we're not Peruvian. Right. Uh, so even if we know a little bit about the cuisine, it's never going to be the same as if you get someone that's local. So... Yeah, I think growing the company would go a little more in that direction in the future. That makes sense. That's really exciting. Yeah, absolutely. Just, and it kind of ties that level of travel, even if you're not on every single tour or experience. You're yes, exactly. No. To, you know, if anything, do research, but yeah. It, exactly. Yeah, some of the scouting, maybe going on some of the trips, but uh, mm-hmm. relying on somebody else to really do the guiding there. Mm-hmm. Okay, so then one of the questions I had asked Andrea, and I'm curious to ask you too, is what do you hope your participants, the folks who come on these trips with you, what do you want them, what do you hope they walk away with? Well, to me, the most important thing is that they walk away with an appreciation for Mexico and an understanding of Mexican food beyond what you get in the United States. So it's my hope that they leave with a broadened view of of what they what Mexican food is, what Mexico is, and also what they can do themselves in mm-hmm. their own homes when they're cooking Mexican food or yeah. attempting to cook Mexican food. But they can do more than just make an enchilada casserole. And also I love it when people realize that Mexican food is not just really unhealthy things with a bunch of plasticky cheese um, that we cook with very in a very natural way with very fresh ingredients and we cook daily people go to the market every day buy their food for the day and usually they eat a lot of vegetables and it can be a very healthy cuisine because i i feel like here they they think we put just cheese on everything and we just it's very greasy and (laughs) you leave with with heartburn and that's really not what it what it is but beyond the food i really like for people to get a different view on Mexico and Mexican people that is not what U.S. media shows them. And it goes beyond the tribal advisories and this idea that Mexico is just a very dangerous country. And I I, I mean, I love it when people, they send me emails very worried before and they're like, oh, is it safe to do this? Is it safe to go? But Beyond that, I completely get why why they feel this way, because this is what they're hammered with mm. in media. This is what they tell them. Mexico is the most dangerous place on earth. Mexicans, we're all just consuming drugs and killing people. So I love it when they go there and and they feel happy and they feel safe and they feel okay walking by in the streets by themselves and they go out and they get coffee. And they're like, I can't believe I I ever thought this would be dangerous. You know, there's kids playing around. It feels very calm. So I, yeah, that's, that's really what I, what I want for people to get a different, more realistic idea of what Mexico is, which is just a huge country that is very complex. And it's not just one thing. I, you know, part of me always thinks, oh, the narrative is changing around what Mexican food is and, and everything again, because of social media and because we are a little bit more interconnected, but as someone who is getting these emails, it makes me think, oh, is it not changing? Or I don't, yeah, I don't, I don't know. There's um, danger inherent, frankly, in anything we do these days, anywhere we go. So yeah, I don't know. Maybe it's not changing and I'm just optimistic. 
so yeah I get these questions I don't get them I don't get that that much it's not it's not a question that I have to answer every time but it is a question that I answer often and so many other things that I I think we would be beyond that but I still get people um that think Mexico and Mexican food is a cheap, a cheap destination and a cheap kind of food. Mm. Um, and they have just started to realize that there's very high-end Mexican food, um, that it's not necessarily a cheap country, not because you travel to Mexico, you can pay with dollars. And, mm. um, and I, I mean, so you get all those things and you just have to answer them, but it's, it's a slow education process. And I, I, I mean, I think just the fact that people are willing to travel, even when they have these ideas, means that people are open to changing their minds. I appreciate that. I think people are at least attempting to to open up. And that's yeah. that's important. Yeah. You can work with curiosity. You can't work with somebody who's completely walled off, I think. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> when you were talking about um, people being surprised or like, oh, there is high-end Mexican cuisine. It actually reminded me, I feel like, well, because you do, you grow up with what you're eating at home, like comida casera, right? Your refried beans, your tortillas and all of that. So that's what I was used to eating growing up. And if, if a taco didn't cost a dollar, I wasn't going to eat it because I was like, why would I pay more? And so that was my own bias or my own prejudice, whatever you want to call it. Um, and I'll be, and I'm not lying to you when I say this, your mom is the one who changed my idea around that. Mm. Um, I didn't know her yet, but I knew of the restaurant. And I actually went to the restaurant when it was still a trailer here. <laughs> and I kept hearing about it. And I was like, oh, fine. Because, well, it, also, anytime somebody recommends a Mexican restaurant, I just automatically am like, no, it's probably not going to be any good because you don't. Oh, yeah, me too. Depends on who's it coming from, too. <laughs> I'm like, it's not going to be any good. But no, I always go. They usually and aren't. <laughs> they usually aren't. Thank you for saying that. <laughs> so I was like, okay, I'm going to go try it. And I liked it. And I was like, oh, well, this is actually really good. And then she, her and, and your father opened the brick and mortar place. And I remember thinking, I was like, man, this is it, this is not inexpensive compared to what I'm used to eating. But I was like, the, fu- the food is beautiful. It's done with such care and with such reverence for the ingredients. So she taught me something through her, through what she was doing. And I was like, why can I admire the cuisine of someone else and be willing to shell out? top dollar for that but I can't do it for my own and here's somebody who's doing it at the same level and so she changed my mind in that regard and yeah. I haven't looked back <laughs> no uh and I think even even for Mexicans uh when I was much younger and when my mom was growing up in Mexico Mexicans would not go and pay money to eat Mexican food mm-hmm. that was just not the culture in Mexico either people would eat Mexican food at home And if they wanted to go to a fancy restaurant, they would go and eat French food and they would go to any Italian food. Yes. That's what people paid good money for. And yeah, people started realizing why can't we make food, Mexican food, fancier and reinvent it and make it high end. And if you want to have really good food, you have to invest in really good ingredients and good ingredients are costly. You want to serve your, uh, your mole with a very fancy piece of duck. That's going to cost a lot of money. Uh, and making a mole is actually a very expensive dish. Like mole negro, for example, it yeah. takes three days to make. So, I mean, you're paying someone to stand in a kitchen and do that for three days. Not not the whole three days. They, they, sure? go, they go home and sleep, by the way. <laughs> but um, 
but it's a very labor intensive dish. And if you're serving things at a restaurant too, there's also costs involved in running a restaurant. And people don't want to think that they're like, oh, well, a taco is really cheap. And that's why my parents have actually made the decision at El Naranjo to not have tacos anymore because they want to present food from Mexico that has nothing to do with tacos because this is what people are expecting. People are expecting to see tacos in every Mexican menu. And there's so much more beyond that. You can eat tacos anywhere, but you're going to find other dishes that are not tacos that are going to broaden your view. We still have some enchiladas because there's there's just no way of taking those from Texans. No. Um, you have to have I some... always order them when I go with a friend in particular. We always get the enchiladas, Beatriz. They're so good. They are really good. They are really good. But yes, you have to have something that people still recognize. I wouldn't be surprised if sometime soon they're like, okay, we're done with the enchiladas too. <laughs> That's fair. Totally fair. <laughs> but yeah, it's, there's, it's, it's such an incredibly complex and vast world in Mexico of food uh, that we are just, people are just, you know, tunnel vision and they just think it's, it's tacos. And we have so many other things that aren't, that aren't tacos and uh, that are amazing and worth trying and worth seeing. Um, and things that are just more complex and more difficult to make. And Mexican food can be very elegant and incredibly layered. And all of that is expensive to make. And then if you're using quality ingredients like your family does, then that is an additional cost. You know, you're yeah. not just buying like a bar of Hershey's to make your mole. <laughs> you're buying exactly. and, good Oaxaca and chocolate. And bringing and bringing the ingredients from Mexico. You know, we got we got heirloom uh, corn varieties from Oaxaca and other states in Mexico. And we got our beans from Oaxaca because we really want the, the food to taste like it would in Mexico. Mm-hmm. We want people to go there and feel like they're eating... Uh, food from home which is what happens to me when I go out to a lot of Mexican restaurants it doesn't taste like Mexico Uh, and it's not that it's bad it's just it doesn't remind me of home right Um, and yeah talking about Hershey chocolate I had I had a story because I was waiting tables at the restaurant for a really long time when I was in college I had someone ask me if uh if our mole negro was traditionally made with Hershey's chocolate and peanut butter, like his grandma used to make it. No. Wow. <laughs> I was like, well, Hershey's no. is not from Mexico. I think it's from <laughs> Pennsylvania or something. But it is, yeah. And peanut <laughs> peanut butter. I haven't heard that one in a while. I think I remember my mom maybe putting peanut butter every once in a while in her mole. <laughs> well, if you didn't have anything else, that's exactly. what was well, but it's and not that's, traditional. <laughs> it's not traditional, no. And I think that was the thing. And I love my mother's cooking, but I've never liked her mole. I still don't like her mole. And I can say that (laughs) with all the love in my heart that I have for her. It wasn't until I went to Mexico and had an authentic mole negro that I was like, this is delicious. (laughs) Like what she's making at home is not this. (laughs) But, you know, she didn't grow up with that type of cooking. She grew up with a very different, you know, regional cuisine. And so my my brothers and sisters like it, but. Yeah, so it's, it's just funny. I'm like, okay, well, I'm not going to knock my mom. She ain't making mole. <laughs> she's making <laughs> she's making a very different version of it. Yeah, and I mean, that's also one thing about mole is that there are so many different moles in Mexico that yeah. when people tell me oh, I don't like mole, I'm like, well, which one? Because you may not like this one, but you can like a different one, right? There's so many different ones. They think, they think it's just a sauce made with chocolate and chilies, and yeah. it's actually a minority of the moles that have chocolate at all, so... Fantastic. So um, I wanted to go back to the tra- to travel because I love to travel, too. I think that's like 
if that's all I do in my life, if I die and I've traveled a ton, I will be happy. I was talking to a friend about this. She goes, I love how much you enjoy it and that you actually work towards it. I was like, well, I don't want to look back when, I, when I'm dying and think I didn't right. go for it. But anyways, aside from that, I read one of your articles, which I think I might have mentioned in an email to you, the one um, about Bowie. And you're talking about Bowie and magical realism. And I was, as I was reading it, and I think you kind of defined magical realism a little bit. I was like, oh, how many of us are, that's what travel is for us. And so I think I posed a question to you. Do you think travel is a form? Is that how I said it? A form of magical realism? Yes. Uh, yeah. So the article I wrote was basically talking about David Bowie uh, and as an artist and as a performer, especially, mm-hmm. and how uh, I compared it to magical realism and like, a literary form. Yeah, so when I travel, I enjoy learning about different views and ways to live, because to me, that opens up new possibilities about, you know, what other foods there are and other ideas and other emotions. Uh, Even feelings and language often reflect your environment. So there's just so many new possibilities, different forms of government, other ways to do politics that oftentimes may be better or worse, uh, but you can get something out of uh, out of everything, right? Mm-hmm. And there's incredible stories uh, that can be beautiful and brutal, but just different ways to live. And yeah, I think if we think about magical realism being something that alters your reality mm-hmm. uh, and shows you a different way to do things, um, there's obviously something fantastical about magical realism and that it's not quite true. And that point, it's not necessarily the same with traveling because everything you see is actually true and happening and real. Um, but in a way, yeah, you you travel and you have surreal experiences sometimes and you realize this isn't what I'm used to and you find something new that you never thought it was possible and yeah. that had existed. You eat something and you're like, how are these people eating this food? And that that is there's some magical realism about that for sure. Um, like I like I was just in India in December, and to me I I really loved walking around the street and you see all these kinds of animals mm. that just inhabit the streets, and people go about it so normally. You know, yeah. there's there's a cow, there's a goat, there's I see a camel in the street, there's monkeys, there's dogs. Uh, there's an elephant all of a sudden you're walking and you see all these animals which obviously I'm not used to seeing in the street and I just thought it was so beautiful because people people in India just have this idea that why are humans the only ones supposed to be living in the streets why do we own the streets because they belong to all of us right and to me that was just amazing I was just so (laughs) amazed by this concept (laughs) of sharing the streets with the animals um because we're all just kind of part of the same ecosystem exactly so to me that was kind of a magical realism you're walking on the street and all of a sudden you see a camel right there you're like wow (laughs) how's it going yeah I know yeah I read that and um I was like yeah I guess I could see some of it but you're right I mean there is obviously this is a very real um a, a very real reality for the people that live there day to day which also I think is sometimes part of the problem that I have with the media in particular, because I think it sometimes it over romanticizes certain aspects of oh, you yeah. know, a culture. And so people then get narrow minded about that's the way it always is. And when they're presented with something else, they're like, oh, but I thought it was. And so, but yeah, I thought 
I had never thought of it that way until I read the article. And I was like, yeah, there's an aspect to it that I could, you know, kind of tie together. And I'd be curious what you thought. So, but anyways, awesome. Well, okay. So what, since you're a food writer, I'm always interested in what food writers are reading. Do you stick? I mean, I'm sure you read a, a variety of things, but do you have food writers that you find they're doing really interesting work? A lot of people I follow are just through Instagram, but. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I don't read anybody in particular. Like I'm not just following a certain person. But lately I've, I've, I found, I found interesting just people that are telling stories um like personal stories through food like sort of these food vignettes um so one writer that I really liked and I I worked with him he was my editor at food 52 now he's at the New York Times but Eric Kim he he writes really beautiful about just his personal story weaving his his life with with food stories um so he talked about what it means for him to be Korean American and his coming out story uh, with food. And then another food book that I read recently was uh, Michelle Saunders. It's called Crying in H Mart. And well, she talks about sort of uh, reconnecting with her heritage with food after her mom passed away. Uh, so she was just, I loved how she was just using this primordial necessity that we have to eat uh, to work through her grief. And that's really what I like in in food writing. I don't really enjoy that much reading reading stories that are just like, oh, I ate this and it tasted like this and it was delicious. And yeah. uh, to me, that means absolutely nothing usually. So in recipes, I don't really enjoy like cookbooks that only talk about recipes and do this and do that and put this in the pot. I enjoy it when there's a story behind it and we can learn something either about the history or the person and how it's related to their own story or, yeah. you know, the global context so I like those kinds of food writers and that's what I find exciting when I read them yeah I mean it brings in that that personal connection like with anthropology that you were drawn to so many years ago so it makes sense mm, yeah how it connect to certain things uh certain memories yeah 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 I think it's why I started to have these conversations I mean it was born out of a need to just talk to people because I started during the pandemic um yeah. but also when we travel my husband always laughs because he's like you talk to everybody <laughs> he's like we can go anywhere and you automatically like make a friend because I just start asking questions I mean I try to be as polite as possible but usually people are very um they appreciate it when you're asking deeper questions about the work that they do and um how they got started and and all of that and I do I love it I mean I could when we were on the food tour in Mexico City we went to um Oh, geez, somewhere in Centro, he makes jugos, just that's all he does. And he's been doing that, a, a juice bar, if you will. <laughs> and he's just been doing that for years. And then he just started pulling out pictures of his time and the people that he's met. And I was like, I just met you, but I feel like he just opened up like automatically. He's probably just a naturally extroverted person, but that happens everywhere I go and he laughs because me and my brother are the same way we like meet you and I'm like all right tell me everything <laughs> tell me your story tell me your, tell me your life <laughs> yeah because it's not just like oh it's the guy who makes juices there's a person behind that oh yeah because they are they're also not charging you 15 dollars for a juice like they are here. 
what are like what are they doing to these juices? And it's all frozen ingredients. They're not they're not even fresh. Oh, I know. Fifteen dollars. Why? It's ridiculous. I know. It's so funny. I go, we'll travel and I'm like, I'm gonna go get a juice and I'm gonna pay maybe, maybe a dollar. I don't even know. And I'm like, it's the same thing I'm getting back in the States and it's just and they're so much more delicious because fruits actually taste like fruits in Mexico. I know, I know. Not to mention just the variety that you can still get in yeah, places like exactly. Oaxaca. You know, it's not just one banana. Um, which again, I talked to An Andrea about it, and I was like, I have one variety of banana here. She's like, I have so many. I'm like, I know, I'm so jealous. Oh um, yeah, yeah. There's a whole a whole world of things. Yeah. So as you're traveling, is there anything that you're any food that you're curious about these days? And it doesn't have to be limited to Mexican cuisine. I mean, you just went to India, so I feel like I'd be on an India kick. Yeah, I'm. I'm. I'm less interested in any like specific cuisine of the world, mm. and more about. Uh, I think this trend that we're getting to now uh, of going back to less abstract ways of cooking. So I'm excited about dishes that have names, you know, uh, this return that we're seeing, like people are just kind of like, oh, I don't like this new or this trend that we had for years of this uh, high-end dining and fine dining. And I feel like a lot of places are returning to more like traditions and home cooking. Mm -hmm. And this may be like interpretations of traditional dishes, but what I mean is, you know how you used to go to like this fine dining restaurants and you would uh, just see in the menu a dish and there were just a list of ingredients and there was no name. It was like leek, leek and sorrel and the catch of the day. And the next day people ask you, what did you eat last night? And you're like, oh, I don't know. I had this fish <laughs> with like a foam of something and a dot of this other thing. And you can't actually say what you ate. Yeah. This is just like a random list of ingredients and you have no idea what it what it what it was and you don't remember it so I'm excited about food that like creates memories and just going back to this to this moment of like having like a real dish of something you know where it's like a really good pasta or mm. just a really good sandwich but like something like concrete yeah <laughs> because yeah I mean when we do our our trips we're usually going back to the same restaurants over and over and we go we go to all kinds of restaurants, right? So we eat in uh, very high-end restaurants, like the fanciest restaurants available. And we eat street food and we eat at people's houses and we eat just at normal little eateries. But I'm always the most excited, not about these like super fancy restaurants that give me things that I can't remember the next day, yeah. but about these dishes that are like concrete. They give you they give you a dish, right? Just like a quesadilla or something very like simple. And that's, that's really what I like people actually want to eat. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And... No, it makes sense. We were, it, it reminds me again, I feel like because it's right there. It's, it's still very recent. When we went to Mexico City, we ate at some high end at, a, or at one or two high end restaurants. But the meal that we all keep going back to me and my husband and my two friends, street corner in Roma Sur. It's called Los Caramelos. You should check it out. And it's it's a little, it's a tostada, which the, the part that surprised me the most was, I wasn't surprised that it was good. There's so much good food in Mexico City. Yeah. But it was a tostada made with a tortilla de harina, a flour tortilla, which I I feel like the farther south you go, you just don't see flour tortillas. Right, yeah. But it was, you know, nice and toasted. And then it had some refried beans on top and then a little bit of like shredded beef. Um, it was, and it was small. But it was so good. And then you had the little tortas. The bread was so soft. 
um, and cheese. And that's the meal that we all keep going back to. I can't remember what I ate, like you said, at the fancy restaurant. It had a yeah. foam. It was a dried something. <laughs> yeah. And it's and, and it's not even about the fact that it has to be like cheap or in a street no. corner. Like, you, can yeah. great, you, can, you can have great food memories in very fancy restaurants too. Absolutely. But what I mean is I, I'm just kind of tired of these dishes that like don't don't have names this is like the best way I can put it and you can't name them afterwards you're just kind of like oh it was a sauce with a thing with a foam with a dot of something and a jelly of this and like a crumble of that I just want I just want my food to like be, give it be given to me and to have a name for it oh I ate I ate a mole or I ate and it can be super fancy and it can yeah. be all those things but I just want I just want <laughs> to be able to name them and have a memory of them Probably because it's rooted in something. Having a name means you exist in a way. Yeah. And there's a story behind it, right? It's not just like, oh, I, I just woke up and I saw a sorella at the market and I wanted to make this foam out of it. Like, <laughs> Yeah. I mean, go ahead. And it, I'm sure it was lovely. But yeah, you're not. It's not going to be the same. No. And I think I think this is uh, I think this is just something that people are feeling. They mm. And maybe it's the pandemic, maybe it's, I, I don't know what it is, but um, there has been a lot of like articles I've been reading about people being really tired of this fine dining scene and all of those trends about, you know, the dishes that don't have names. And yeah, I I just love it when I can, the next day I'm, I'm, I just think, oh, I had this amazing beef bourguignon and it was the best thing I've eaten my whole trip. That's, that's what I love. I want, yeah. I like those memories. <laughs> That makes sense. And then everything else associated with it, the people you were with, or the environment and everything, because it, it ties it, it ties it all together somehow. So yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's what I love. I love traveling. And I, I do travel through food often. That's kind of the way I know to get into a culture. So yeah, to me, it's really the only way. I agree. I mean, you have to eat. Um, you have to eat. You have to eat. It, to me, it seems like a, such a simple and honest way to connect with another culture, mm -hmm. because we do all eat. Art is beautiful. Everybody has art, but I don't think it speaks to everybody in the same way. And I, maybe food doesn't either. I don't know. I'm very biased. I love eating. I love food. I love <laughs> what it teaches us. I love how we're connected we are. So, yeah. <laughs> oh, I mean, everybody has their priorities. You know, there's sure. a lot of travelers that don't really care for food. So they go yeah. somewhere. They're fine eating at McDonald's, even mm -hmm. if they're like in Japan. And I mean, that's fine. They connect through things differently. To me, that makes absolutely no sense. And those people are... <laughs> very weird but, <laughs> but, but there's no wrong, wrong. <laughs> i know there's no wrong or right way to be fair but, but they're wrong but they're wrong <laughs> i'm like you gotta eat why would you eat it okay maybe you're the japan mcdonald's has something different than we do but eh. <laughs> right exactly yeah. no, absolutely um i hear you i don't yeah. understand it either but <laughs> it's okay it is what it is we're probably weirdos to other people too so yeah we're yeah. probably spent too much money on food <laughs> i know i do <laughs> <laughs> uh, awesome well is there anything else you want to share anything about like Mexico culinary traditions or maybe an article you have coming out or just anything that yeah you want to add before we no um nothing new I think we you did such a good job asking me all these very thorough questions Thank you. Uh, <laughs> and it was it was really just lovely discussing what we do in our work and just you know we put so much love and care into crafting this and sharing it with people that uh, I hope really for people that travel with us that that comes across and it's always really rewarding for us when people just fall in love with where we are and the people and the food 
and that's really what it's about and also bringing people some money um so you know we take people to all these uh workshops of artisans and and they buy from them and then that helps them out and so it's it's all an ecosystem well I'm grateful for the work that you and your mom do the education that you're sharing with everybody and just what I've learned already from her and now from you too so I really appreciate it I hope I get to meet you in person someday before you move back to Mexico City <laughs> well yeah I'm here all the time so <laughs> I'm here all the time anyway my family's here so that's true. I'll always be attached to Austin and we will definitely be back to Mexico City so I will you should in Oaxaca and Michoacan and Merida and other places. Michoacan is high on my list. Me and well, my we brother, go with us. <laughs> brother. I know we we keep talking about Morelia and we're like we need to go to Morelia. We've been yeah, it really it looks beautiful. Merida, we've been. It's beautiful too. I think we've been to all of them except Morelia, the ones that y'all. Michoacan is a very magical place um, that is super underrated. And I tell this to everybody I meet because even Mexicans have a really like skewed view of mm. what Michoacan is because of really bad uh, media press. Yes. But Morelia is such a gorgeous city. It's really colonial and just beautiful. But it's really for me when we go to Michoacan, it's really about going into this um, smaller towns that are surrounding Morelia, all these beautiful little uh indigenous towns that are still very very indigenous they didn't have all this uh, Spanish involvement as much other places so they really preserve so many so many traditions and it's it's beautiful they have a, a really uh big tradition of having women mostly women cooks there's mm -hmm. some men um they call them traditional cooks and it was really in Michoacan where the we got the UNESCO uh denomination as a uh, intangible intangible heritage of the world for Arcusian. Yes. So it's France and it's Mexico. And for the Mexico, they they build the case on Michoacan and the traditional cooks in Michoacan. So it's just really amazing. It's yeah. just an entirely different place from all over Mexico. And it's just beautiful. Yeah, no, I'm truly, truly curious about it because it's not a place that I know. It's not a place that was ever on my radar until recently, honestly. Um, it might have been through a talk that your mom organized at the Lozano, at the Teresa Lozano uh, studies here at UT. And a woman came and she was teaching like traditional tamales and they looked like, what do they call them? Corunas, corunas probably. Corunas, yes, 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 corunas. And I was like, oh, I had no idea that that was the thing. I mean, it was beautiful. I've never seen a tamal that looked so beautiful. I mean, is it a tamal? Can I call it a tamal? Yeah. Tamal, yeah, one tamal. One tamal to tamales. It's not yeah, a tamal. Yeah, but a coruna is a tamal, right? Yes, or it's a tamal. Type of, yeah. Yes, it's a type of tamal. Um, and so it's, tamal, yeah. it's a tamal. I was like, and they have so many different ones. They do some tamales with blackberries that are amazing, and they just have a an amazing cuisine. And the the place are beautiful. And a plus is that there are no tourists, <laughs> so <laughs> because they're afraid to go there. Because they're afraid to go there, and once yeah. they're like, why? But yeah, there are no tourists, so it's lovely. <laughs> oh, I'm sure. I know. I know. Oh, I mean, that's the thing about travel. It's like you're a tourist, and sometimes you don't want to be a tourist, but well, you, you, are, can't, yeah. but you can't help but being one. <laughs> yep, I know. Absolutely. No, it's all about diminishing the impact when you travel mm -hmm. and trying to sort of say, I mean, you travel and you bring you bring your money and you help out people and uh, about spreading that and and, you know, trying to travel in a conscious way. Yeah. And I think that's as much as we can do. There's 
there's really no other way to travel if you want to travel yeah i think to be a responsible traveler is is the key for sure so, oh well thank you this was great it was so nice to meet you Okay, is anybody else looking for their passport after listening to that episode? I'm always ready to pack my bags and hit the road, but more so after speaking with folks like Isabel who are doing such cool work in Mexico. If, like me, you're ready to hop on a plane, be sure to check out Mexican Culinary Traditions at MexicanCulinaryTraditions.com or on Instagram at Culinary Traditions to get more info on their destinations and see what they're up to. Thank you once again to Isabel for joining me and to you, the audience, for tuning in. If you like what you hear, be sure to leave a review and share the podcast with friends. It means a lot. Until next time, be safe, be well, and hasta pronto.